Welcome to Leadership Conversations, the podcast of the Sustainability Board, where we explore the latest insights in sustainable leadership, ESG practices, and corporate governance. Each month, we bring you insightful interviews with business and civil society leaders, educators, and advisors who are at the forefront of driving sustainable change. We delve into the challenges, strategies, and innovations that are transforming businesses and boards. Join us as we uncover thought-provoking discussions and actionable insights that will inspire you to take your own leadership journey towards a sustainable future. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast and be part of our growing community committed to making a positive impact. Visit our website at boardreport.org for additional resources and stay up to date with the latest reports, intelligence and conversations. Today's guest on Leadership Conversation is Alison Taylor. She is a clinical associate professor at NYU Stern School of Business and the executive director at Ethical Systems. Her previous work experience includes being a managing director at nonprofit business network ESR and a senior managing director at Control Risks. She holds advisory roles at Venture ESG, Sustainability Nonprofit ESR, Picte Group, and Xilab and is a member of the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Good Governance. Her book, Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World, will be published by Harvard Business Review Press in February 2024. Alison, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. We always start here with the person before we get into the questioning. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and what you do? Sure. So I have been a professor at Stern since the beginning of 2023, but I'm not really an academic. I spent several decades working in various aspects of consulting on what we might call, broadly speaking, ethical issues in business. So first of all, uh, really focusing on political risk and market entry and how and where corporations can and should operate in what used to be called a long time ago, high-risk emerging markets. We don't really think in those terms anymore because the world has got a lot more chaotic. Then I worked in corporate investigations. So worked a lot with legal ethics and compliance teams, investigating bribery, corruption, fraud, money laundering, terrorist financing, first of all in the Middle East and Africa, then in the Americas. So that gave me obviously a certain view uh, about business ethics. And then lastly, I worked in uh, sustainability or what is now often called ESG. So really looking at strategy, materiality, uh, what corporations shouldn't, shouldn't do on these more voluntary issues like climate change and human rights. Uh, I also have a background in HR uh, issues, organizational psychology, social psychology, and that kind of thing. So that is a long-winded way of saying I've looked at business ethics challenges from the perspective of strategy, from the perspective of risk and compliance, from the perspective of sustainability, and then from the perspective of uh, organizational and, and, and behavioral psychology. Excellent. And I can imagine you have spoken to a number of organizations and probably still in your various roles speak to a lot of uh, business leaders. And our listeners will all know what the sustainable business case is, or most of them, certainly. Now tell me, what is the status quo of sustainable business? Are organizations still mostly paying lip service to it? Or is there really a fundamental transformation happening? 
Well, I'm hoping there's a fundamental transformation happening. And I've been out there writing and speaking about what I think it would take for that transformation to take place. Where I think we are at the moment, at least in the US, I don't think necessarily in Europe where there is a a story about impending regulation that is really affecting the landscape very dramatically. Uh, In the US, we're subject to that impending regulation, but there are other things going on, not least the polarization of this topic into right and left. So the status quo, I would say, in the US is that we have one camp of people, many of whom are politicians in the Republican Party, saying that all of this is a waste of time, all of this is a distraction from fiduciary duty. We need to go back to core concepts of shareholder value, of Milton Friedman, of just you know, focus on shareholder value and don't break the law, that camp, of course, would still like the campaign finance and the lobbying money to keep flowing beneath the surface. So uh, I don't think we can safely say, I don't think that's what Milton Friedman intended. On the other side, we have a camp on the left that is more progressive. And I think this is less discussed, but in some ways, uh, I think these group of people put um, an equally uh, unrealistic set of pressures on a corporation. So that camp of people says that you must be sustainable. If any of your stakeholders cares about this issue, you need to be doing something about it, that you need to listen to and balance uh, the interests of all your stakeholders, that we can no longer rely on the public sector. So we really need corporations to solve large scale societal problems. And the problem with that, I think, is that it doesn't really pay attention to the role of government and other institutions in society. And it has arguably, I would argue, drawn corporations into a lot of rather unrealistic speaking up and leadership commitments Uh, that corporations cannot fulfill. And that in turn has generated a lot of anxiety about uh, how we're treating sustainability as PR and it's starting to ramp up into a lot of greenwashing litigation and also uh, backlash, I think, from employees and consumers. So the way I would characterize the situation in the US is that we're really sort of trapped between Scylla and Charybdis. You can neither go back to the 20th century vision of business, nor can you possibly hope uh, to meet all the aspirations that, that the public and certain cohorts are putting on you. And so I think business leaders are really now facing this real challenge with how do you find uh, a more strategic, limited, realistic, authentic approach to what it means to be a sustainable business? So I have been pushing for a more strategic, more restrained approach to these topics, but can certainly safely say many people out there disagree with me. Fair enough. How distracting do you think that is to companies, the whole political backlash, if you will? Let's stay in the US and then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the global situation. But how distracted are organizations that probably should be focusing on just getting it right? I mean, I certainly think it is a distraction. If you look at the US media, you can see enormous volumes of commentary on is ESG over. A lot of that's also commentary on does ESG drive the business case or not, which uh, as you started introducing this topic, I think we can likely agree is not maybe, while not irrelevant, maybe not worthy of the amount of effort and energy uh, that debate uh, chews up. So I certainly think there is anxiety about calling things ESG. There's a lot of rhetoric about that. What you tend to see, though, when you really dig into the topic is one, that that the anti-ESG backlash isn't really resonating with voters. So it's not having the political effect uh, people pushing it uh, think it is. 
more importantly and more interestingly, uh, what we're hearing is that corporations are staying the course uh, because it's not really realistic to, to drop these ideas. They're maybe being a bit less keen to portray all the wonderful things they're doing. They may be being a little less PR-led. I tend to think that all this discourse about green hushing and corporations being more factual and restrained is actually a good thing um, and not a cause for concern. So I certainly think uh, the anti-ESG backlash is causing corporate leaders and board members to be more restrained. I also think things like Target and Bud Light and most recently all the furore about uh, what corporations shouldn't shouldn't say on Israel and Palestine is all kind of driving this, this atmosphere as well. On that then, how vocal do you think should organizations be on the good that they are doing to the world? And the reason why I'm asking you is when I look at courses in business schools, when I look at case studies and articles, there seem to be only five companies in the world who got it right. Like Patagonia, yeah. Unilever, Ikea, Interface, those are the ones that you always see. Is that just me or is that the general sentiment that there's only a handful of companies getting it right? And how important is it for organizations to be vocal about that? Or are they just trying to silently get things done? I mean, I don't think it's just you. I have the same conversation in the classroom. I say, please, students, name a company you think is a sustainable business. They all put their hands up. I say, you're not allowed to say Patagonia or Unilever. They all put their hands down. So, yes, we have landed on a number of poster children who are not necessarily putting out realistic views of, of what is going on. It's also highly revealing, I think, that the new CEO and, and chief sustainability officer of Unilever, one of these poster children, have just come out and said, we overcommitted to too many things over the long term or we need to be more focused, we need to be more strategic or we need to drive short-term performance. So, I think all of this goes back to this kind of Scylla and Charybdis situation uh, I described at the beginning. There is a famous book that has done very, very well called Net Positive by Paul Polman and Andrew Winston that opens uh, with this kind of craft versus Unilever setup, you know, and it says craft, private equity back, greedy, short termist, uh, doesn't care about its stakeholders, you know, suffers this stakeholder bid, doesn't perform well. Unilever has the backing of its stakeholders, doing all these wonderful things for the world, SDG back, get the support of your stakeholders, that will drive your share price, it's all a win-win. What this chapter doesn't seem to want to discuss is the more complicated example of Danone, which made a very uh, long-term investments in regenerative agriculture, and then the CEO and the board got kicked out by investors. So I think the, the problem is, right, if we had moved to this new paradigm where all we cared about was sustainable metrics and performance, maybe business leadership would be easy enough. The problem is we've got everything everywhere all at once. We've got those pressures, but we've also got the old pressures about driving short-term shareholder value. So I would argue it has never uh, been a more difficult time to run an organization. I also think that this notion of, you know, there being these poster children, sustainable businesses that the public supports and, and stakeholders like is not really how the world works. The reality is the reputational risk is not a linear accountability mechanism. It's far more of a funhouse mirror. Activists target the best performers as well as the worst. And then I think the even more inconvenient truth, Fredrick, is that very, very often it is the companies with the worst reputation on the topic that we can Uh, learn the most from. So let me give you a few examples. The companies I have worked with that have the 
strongest approaches, and I'm certainly not saying they're perfect or even good, but the strongest approaches to supply chain oversight are in food and apparel for obvious reasons. Consumers care, we care about what we eat and we care about what we wear. These are also the companies that get the most flack and the most reputational pressure on supply chain oversight issues. Equally, if I want to find uh, somebody who I think is incredibly strong on human rights issues, I'm going to look at mining and oil and gas companies. Who has the worst reputation uh, on human rights? Mining and oil and gas. So the point I'm making is that it is friction and pressure from stakeholders that causes corporations to develop expertise in specific areas. And we're telling ourselves a very weird story that who's got a good reputation or is not getting flack is the best performer. And it's very, very often the opposite. So I think the danger comes with if we look at reputation, we look at PR, we look at coverage, and we look at that as a proxy for performance. I think that's a problem because it's often not the case. I think an even bigger problem is we sort of suggest not least through the transparency and reporting debate, that the public is in some way able to hold corporations accountable. And if they just disclose and maybe withdraw business and in some way evaluate who's doing well or not, nobody I speak to, even if they've got quite a lot of depth in sustainability, finds that easy. None of us find it easy standing in a supermarket trying to figure out whether we buy fair trade, shade grown, organic coffee. And so I think we're dramatically overestimating the ability of the average consumer, member of the public or employee to evaluate this stuff. And that causes us to tell a lot of very weird stories about how sustainability works in general. So I think there are a lot of myths out there. My upcoming book, chapter two, in fact, has 12 of these myths and I try to rip them apart a little bit. So I think part of the problem is expectations and part of the problem is we're telling ourselves a story about the way things work that is not in fact true. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And we'll talk about your book uh, just in a second. I just want to touch on the extractive industry, maybe not doing so badly on, on trying to get ahead of the curve here. Yeah, at the sustainability board, when we are looking at the quality of sustainable governance and ESG engagement of board members, we actually see that, for example, mining companies, and there's one large Australian mining company is doing fantastic in their disclosure, in their depth of the policies, the type of engagement that they have. And then when we look at tech companies, the board doesn't look so good anymore. But yet, so this also, you know, Elon Musk, as we know, is very upset about Tesla having a lower ESG score than ExxonMobil. So there's a misunderstanding about how ESG ratings work. They're also inconsistent and they're not very mature. And then, you know, the other kind of dirty secret here, of course, is that, that tech tends to do very well in ESG ratings because it hires relatively fewer human beings. And one problem with human beings is that they get pregnant and die and have accidents and sue you and do all sorts of risky things. So we have not yet figured out, I think, how to translate the level of good, however you define that, you do in the world into, into an evaluation process that really works in a coherent way. And that in itself drives some of this anti-ESG backlash. Maybe we can debunk another myth, and that's around stakeholders. And I think that common wisdom in business at the moment, if advisors speak to companies or ESG people in a company speak to their board or their management teams, it always usually goes like this, doesn't it? Well, our shareholders are demanding that we have the right uh, policies in place 
and that we worry about our human rights track record and all of these things. And whereas I'm sure that shareholders are very keen on organizations staying within the realms of their own sort of stewardship definitions, when I look at capital markets days, for example, I seldom see sustainability questions at the end. It's usually about profitability, growth, M&A and things like that. So do you think that's incorrect or rather who are the stakeholders that are really putting pressure on organizations for change? Such a good question. So certainly there's pressure coming from investors. It's, as you point out, somewhat somewhat mixed message and contradictory. There's certainly pressure coming from the public, though, uh, you know, this normally takes the form of boycotts and that kind of thing. Lots of evidence they aren't very effective. I tend to think the most powerful and interesting stakeholder group at the moment is employees. That's partly because of the labor market. It's partly because of the revival of unions. I hear more pro-worker sentiment in the classroom and I teach at a Wall Street feeder school. So that's important that I have done in, in, in many, many years. So I do think employees are feeling more empowered than they have. And we can see structurally that the pendulum has swung far too far in favor of, of capital and is now seems to be swinging back towards the worker. I think, though, there's something even more interesting going on here, which is that regardless of the labor market dynamics, employees have a form of power that they did not have in previous decades. And that power enables them to undercut corporate messaging. So what you see repeatedly, right, is corporations saying, here are all the wonderful things we're doing about climate change or diversity or human rights or whatever it might be. And then you see employees undercutting that messaging, either by whistleblowing, like Francis Hogan did at Facebook, or just by leaking strategically damaging internal information into the public domain. So after George Floyd was murdered, you know, every CEO in America said, well, we really care about systemic racism and here's what we're doing about diversity. The next thing that happened was many employees got into Instagram groups and often, often in very progressive organizations and started to put out this information, basically saying, I know the CEO says he cares about these issues, but here's what it's really like to work here. So you tend to see, I think, the undercutting of the corporate messaging. You tend to see a lot more kind of aggressive actions by employees trying to push leaders to take positions on certain issues. And I think that really transforms uh, the stakeholder landscape. But as you said also in your initial question, we're still putting out there, especially for senior leadership teams, this very odd rhetoric that says usually the chief sustainability officer or the sustainability team is responsible for listening to stakeholders and doing stakeholder engagement and translating stakeholder views. And here are all the wonderful things we're doing about stakeholders. By implication, the rest of the business only needs to cover it, care about shareholders. And that's a very, another one of these very strange stories we're telling ourselves because if we really think stakeholders are listening to the sustainability team rather than evaluating the full business, we are not being very sensible. If you are a supplier, you are clearly having far more consequential interactions with the procurement team than the sustainability team. If you're an employee, the HR team. If you're the customer, the business development team. So the idea that we can rely on the sustainability team or the sustainability leader to tell stakeholders a story and that stakeholders are going to believe that rather than how they experience interacting with the rest of the business is another one of those weird things we're saying out there that I don't think is, is doing us that much good. What are your sustainable business pet peeves? 
although you've heard a number of them already. Uh, one is that the sustainability people ought to be responsible for looking after stakeholders. I think one of my biggest pet peeves is the notion that we can disclose ourselves to solving these problems. The reporting, disclosure, due diligence, oversight, giving investors and stakeholders more information is somehow going to solve the problems that we face. It isn't. We can see the CDP, uh, the Climate Disclosure Project, one of the you know most prominent reporting bodies out there on climate, founded in 2000. If you, you can go on its website, it tells a story. Companies are going to start disclosing, then stakeholders will hold them accountable, and then we'll solve climate change. Well, we're still arguing about what we should and shouldn't disclose <laughs> nearly 25 years later. So... I think we're telling ourselves a really strange story that all we need to do is disclose. And what we actually need to do is figure out what the private sector is responsible for, what the government's responsible for, what civil society is responsible for, and how we can collaborate to solve these systemic challenges, which doesn't mean dumping all of this on the private sector, but does mean we need to get realistic about how the private sector influences politics and also then what it really needs would take for us to change these very entrenched systems that we're all still embedded in. Very good. Very good. Let's talk about your book then. And this is the question I ask all authors. Who is the book for and what made you write it? The book is for any corporate leader that's wrestling with the problem of what it takes to be a good business in the mid 21st century. That the, the premise of the book is that we have completely lost sight of what it means to be ethical. It used to be, as we've discussed already, focus on shareholder value and don't break the law. It's not that anymore. But what is it? And, and as we've discussed already on this podcast, you know, I think we've got into a very, very confused, messy space where we're not even agreeing on what the problem is, let alone aligning on how to solve it. So the book tries to bust a number of myths about what it really takes to be a good business. And it tries to provide very practical, realistic advice on what it actually takes today to, to do it right. And so I try to tackle some of the issues that we've been talking about on this podcast. How can you really build stakeholder trust rather than putting out all this kind of crazy rhetoric? How can you set environmental and uh, social priorities when there's all these calls on you to do, you know, to be ambitious on 50 things and you can't really do that? How do we really manage these transparency pressures? How do we manage employees speaking up in this era of strategic leaking and weaponizing of internal in information? So I try to provide practical advice. I have certainly a number of, a huge number of practical examples. I did about 200 interviews for the book. I also think about my MBA students and future business leaders who are trying to figure this out. So I'm certainly trying to speak to the leaders of today, but also the leaders of tomorrow. And I'm also trying to provide an accessible and kind of holistic view of these topics, because the other thing I observe, and this is why I got the book deal, is that there's a discourse going on in compliance and ethics. You know, how do we stop companies breaking the law? How do we set up good whistleblowing lines? How do we train employees? There's a discourse going on in sustainability. How do we solve climate change? How do we become good corporate citizens? How do we, you know, how do we think about ESG? Then there's a conversation going on in HR. How do we build more effective culture? How do we think about employee motivation and engagement and purpose? And one of my observations is those three conversations are not super aligned or coherent. So I've tried to bring them all together and come up with something that is sensible and funny and practical. 
And I think it's very timely, especially on the tactics side. I think everybody knows what the overall strategy should be, but what are what are the KPIs or what are the, the practical examples that, that get us there now? So excited for this to come out. And we are almost at the end here, Alison, but we have two questions that we're asking every guest. The first one is, what is your favorite story of a particular leader or organization that had a big impact on yourself or society at large? Oh, I'm going to tell the story of the CEO of Jabani, which is a, a yogurt company um, in the US. And I start and end my book with this example. I think it's a very good example of the kind of things that I've been talking about. Uh, Chobani is a private company. And so the first thing to say about, about the food system in the US is most food companies are monopolies or part of monopolies and Chobani is, is not one. The, the founder of Chobani is not a refugee, but is from Turkey and funds a big uh, refugee nonprofit. And the organization does a lot with refugees. Notably, Chobani has managed to hire uh, workers in its manufacturing plants who are refugees in very, very Republican uh, parts of the U.S., in Idaho uh, and upstate New York. They have managed to do that without facing any notable anti-ESG backlash or any public pressure, despite how hazardous it, it seems to be out there. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Chobani really focuses on treating its workers with dignity and respect. It gives them an ownership stake. It really kind of listens to them. It puts people at the center. It makes limited focus commitments to addressing issues in the U.S. food system, including undocumented immigrant workers. And I think has really made a commitment to its workforce and via its senior leadership team that plays out in how its workforce uh, sees the issue and plays out in its public profile and plays out in its reputation and strategy. So it is a good example. I don't in general think there's such a thing as a good company. I'm certainly not saying they get everything right. In fact, I think the myth of a good company is one of the problems. But I would point to Jabani as a company that I think is doing really well um, on a number of these really fraught, difficult issues. And uh, the CEO, Hamdi Ulukaya, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, I've seen uh, a few of his, shall we call it, thought leadership as well and and really enjoyed a very authentic person to lead a a company, certainly different to the usual CEO that we see in the US. Uh, Great example. Thanks for that. And then the last question is, can you give our listeners one piece of advice that they can make part of their leadership toolkit and start applying today to set them up for more positive societal impact? And I know this sounds a little bit cheesy, but let's just assume a CEO, they have values and missions and purpose and CDP reporting and, and all the good stuff, but they don't really feel much is happening. What is your top tip for sort of a, a practical lever to pull to really drive transformation? Focus. Focus on one to three issues that are existential to how your business makes money, that are profoundly important to stakeholders profoundly important to your bottom line that will threaten your business if you do not solve them or address them over the long term that contain opportunities. Climate change is a good example. It's got innovation upside. It's got risk. It's got ethical imperative, but that may not be the most material issue for your business. My point is focus on one to three issues and really try to solve those issues ambitiously. On everything else you may need to disclose, you may need to align with peer practice. You do not need to act ambitiously on 40 issues. Pick your battles and really get the business behind solving those issues. The rest of it is all noise. Pick your battles. I don't think we had that before. 
Thanks very much, Alison, for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast and be part of our growing community committed to making a positive impact. Visit our website at boardreport.org for additional resources and stay up to date with the latest reports, intelligence and conversations.